0: Hi, this is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church in Milanville, Pennsylvania. From all of us at the Beacon of Hope, let me wish you and your loved ones a happy new year. Have you ever been told by a man whom you know to be living an evil life that he's confident that he's on his way to heaven because he's been born again? Or have you ever listened to a preacher who came to the end of a message and told you to simply pray certain words to God to be saved? Is that what it means to be a follower of Christ? Can you go from being a child of the devil to a child of God by simply mouthing certain magic words to God without any intent to repent of your sins and surrender your life to the Lord? In this week's study of a message Jesus himself actually gave during his time on earth, Pastor Jones will examine Christ's own teachings on what it means to be his follower. I warn you, what you're about to hear from the lips of Christ is not what is commonly taught in many churches today. But if you'd like to see for yourself what our Lord taught on the subject of being His disciple, I'd encourage you to get a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14 and verse 25, and follow along.
1: Well, it's good to be with you for another Beacon of Hope broadcast, and I do want to wish you a upcoming Happy New Year, Lord willing, as uh, this message is going out on the 27th of December, and um, I had one lady in my church that said, I think a bunch of people are going to stay up on uh, December 31st to make sure the new the, that this year goes out, because it's been such a very difficult year for many of us, and yet um, uh, God is gracious and God is working, um, not just in spite of, but really in the difficult circumstances that we go through. And so we're coming today to another message of Jesus that he uh, preached during his public ministry and it's really right on top of one that we talked about just a couple weeks ago and that would be the um uh, when he was talking about the the parable of the great supper. Was the end of that message, and we'll. So we're picking up today at Luke chapter fourteen. We're looking at verses twenty-five to thirty-five, and uh, it talks. Jesus talks in this passage about his standard of discipleship. Discipleship is is the idea of if you want to be a follower of Jesus, here's what he expects. And I will tell you that as a, a preacher of the gospel, one of the major things I want to do in this message is just simply not to water down what the Lord said to proclaim what he said um, with the same uh, truths that, that he espoused without trying to change them. And so before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the blessing of being able to study your word and to be able to proclaim it. And Father, we do sense the danger of trying to water down what our Lord said that this is uh, so different, so radical from what uh, is commonly taught today about what it means to be a follower of Christ, that um, we must uh, take your word and not try to change it, but uh, again, proclaim it as honestly and faithfully as we can. And so I pray that we'll do that, and that as folks listen, that you might use this in their lives for their eternal good and for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, if you uh, want to study the Gospels and the life of Christ and um, how the Gospels fit together, Luke chapter 10 verse 1 through all the way through chapter 18 and verse 14 is a section that is completely unique to his Gospel. And the section that we're looking at this morning then is, is fits in that, uh, in that unique section of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Remember that many times the Gospel writers' accounts are going to overlap. It's like um, looking at the same situation from different angles. Uh, but again, this section, uh, Jesus is, uh, is, is being proclaimed by Luke and explained as his ministry, his teaching, in ways that are unique uh, uh, to the Gospel of Luke. And when we come to chapters 14 and 15, what you can see is four different excuses that people frequently use to reject Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, the first one is this idea, I don't want God. And you can see that in the Pharisees' critical spirit in the first six verses of chapter 14. Um, You can also see that in the aversion that many have for God's call, Christ's call, for selfless living, to forget about yourself and live for the Lord and for other people. And you also see that uh, particularly in the parable of the Great Supper, where the people rejected the supper that this was was being offered by a very kind and generous man, who, by the way, represents God in the parable, but they they rejected the supper basically because they didn't like God. They didn't like the man. It wasn't that they wouldn't have enjoyed the supper, they didn't like the man, and That is a picture that many people tragically will will throw away the blessings of God, peace, joy, eternal life in heaven, really because they don't want God running their lives. They don't want God being an authority over them. So uh, we see this this first excuse. Many people just simply say, I don't want God. Many others say, I do not want to pay the high cost of following Jesus. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. As Jesus sets the bar high, he is not... Uh, compromising what needs to be done if you are going to truly be His follower, and so He'll la- lay that out, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Uh, a, th- a third reason why people sometimes reject is they don't like some of the sinners who become followers of God, and you find that in the first couple of verses of chapter 15 when Jesus is criticized because of some of the irreligious people, formerly irreligious people who have come. To accept the Lord and are trying to follow Him and obey Him. And so many people don't like that either. They don't, well, I don't think, you know, this guy who used to be a terrible person and, you and, uh, know, wrecked his home and was a terrible father and a terrible husband, why would God save him? well, I'm thankful for the fact that the Lord is merciful to all who will humble themselves before him. And then there's a fourth reason why people reject the Lord, and that is they don't like the proud attitude of some who claim to be loyal followers of the Lord. People who've maybe been brought up in church and have have gone to church very faithfully and and would, would almost hit you if you tried to get them not to come, and yet they're very proud people and and irritating to be around because you can tell they just look down at those who are different than they are. And that as well is one of the reasons why people reject the Lord is because they don't like some of the people that claim to be followers of Him. Um, you know, it's easy to be, claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, however, without truly being committed to Him. And the tragedy is that sometimes people are rejecting Christ and using as the excuse, they don't like some of Christ's followers. And the truth is, those people that are claiming to be his followers aren't even genuine themselves. And so, I'd like to break down the passage of Jesus talking about what it means to be his disciple into three sections. The first is the largest section by far. It's Christ's message to the lost. It's a person who is not yet a follower of Jesus, but who is at least considering that. And so in verses 25 to 33, he'll address uh, those of you that might fit that category. And then he has a message to the saved. It's much shorter. In verses 34 and 35, the first part of verse 35, Jesus talks to those who already are followers uh, and and challenges them not to uh, step away from their commitment. And then the third is really a message that Jesus gives in the last part of verse 35 to both the saved and the lost. And so that's how the passage breaks down. Now notice, first of all, Christ's message to the lost. This is the only place in Scripture that Jesus says about someone, you cannot be my disciple if you don't follow this. Very interesting. And he means it. So to follow Christ, listen to this, verse 25 and 26. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, so he's got a number of people that are all following him. And I'm sure if we went into the crowd and we took a poll um, and said, okay, are you a follower of Jesus or are you an enemy of Jesus or are you kind of undecided? Um, you'd find in all probability a mixture. I would imagine that there would be some, if they were honest, would say, no, I don't I don't believe in him. I, I don't respect him. I, I'm really his enemy. If they were honest, they would say that. There would be others that would say, I don't know. I'm not really sure if I believe in him or not. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I'm here to, to watch and listen and see what happens. I don't know if I am or not yet. And then there's a, a would be a third group, probably in my opinion, would be the majority of the people in this crowd who would be following him because they're saying, no, I am a follower. I, I do believe in him. I think he's the Messiah. Well, he turns around to this group of people then, this, this probably a mixed bag of people. He says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. That's the first of three times he says to someone, "You cannot be my disciple." Now, what does he mean by this? You must um, uh, hate your father and mother, and your and your wife and children, and your brothers and sisters. What does he mean by that? Well, uh, this would be something that should have been understood by uh, the people of Jesus' day um, if they had any kind of a biblical background. Let me uh, take you to a passage in Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29 uh, talks about a man by the name of Jacob. And in, in the days of the Old Testament, polygamy was not, um, was, was not forbidden. And it's a tragedy that the Lord clearly lays out. He, he created, by the way, Adam and Eve. He only created one man for one woman. And that was the standard. That was the model. But there were many people in that day, and there are still people across the planet today, that practice polygamy. It's an abuse of women. Um, it is a, a very difficult um, and, I think, demeaning uh, perversion of marriage. But there were people that practiced it. Now, if there was ever an excuse for polygamy, it would be this case, where Jacob, um, was. it was time for him to find a wife, and he went and um, saw a beautiful young lady named Rachel, who seemed also, by the way, to be a godly woman as well, and almost instantly falls in love with her. And so he has Rachel has a father. Back then, you had to pay a dowry in order to take a girl from her home. And so uh, Rachel's father was uh, like, he had a bunch of cattle, sheep, goats, that type of thing. And his name was Laban. And so Jacob said, I, I will, will serve you seven years for your youngest daughter, Ra- Rachel. He had two daughters, one was Leah, one was Rachel. And the Bible says that, that Jacob, the days seemed to fly by. He didn't even, uh, was hardly any, it wasn't hard for him at all because he loved Rachel so much um, which, by the way, pr- shows that love is patient. When pe- when a young couple says, "Oh, we just can't wait uh, for marriage," when to have sex before marriage, they don't really love each other. They're in lust for each other, and they just want to fulfill their desires. Uh, true love waits, and so Jacob was was willing to to work the seven years in order to marry Rachel. Well, when the seven years are up, they're having uh, on his wedding night. Um, they've uh, in that culture, evidently, they they veiled the bride. Uh, heavily, so you wouldn't really see who she was. Well, Laban, instead of giving him Rachel, his younger daughter, he gave him Leah, his older daughter, realizing that she was not as pretty as Rachel and that she was not probably going to have as easy time of getting married. And uh, also, uh, he probably wanted uh, Jacob tied in for more labor. And so before Jacob consummates the relationship, The next morning he wakes up and uh, Leah, who never told him that she was the wrong woman, um, is now at his side there and officially his wife. And Jacob, very upset, understandably so, goes to his father-in-law and says, what have you done to me? And Laban comes up with a lame excuse. Oh, in our culture, you have to marry the older one off first, so I'll tell you what we'll do. Um, you just give Leah uh, the, the week of this wedding. That's how long they would evidently celebrate in that culture. You give her the week, and then I'll let you have my daughter Rachel at the end of the week. You can marry her as well, and then you got to serve me seven more years for for her. And so Jacob, because the love of his life was uh, still there, and again, if there's ever an excuse for polygamy, here it would be. Jacob says, okay, I'll do that. So He uh, fulfills the week of uh, the marriage celebration for Leah. He marries Rachel, her sister, and and goes on and uh, will serve seven more years for basically for nothing other than for uh, the privilege of marrying Rachel. He ends up serving 14 years for this girl who was the love of his life. Now, why is that significant? Well, in verse 29 and 30 of Genesis uh, 29, it says this, And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter, Rachel, as a maid, Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Now that makes sense, that Rachel um, is definitely the love of his life. It doesn't mean that that he despised Leah. She probably really had an affection for her as like a sister or sister-in-law that she would be. But she just wasn't on the same level as Rachel. Verse 31 then says this, When the Lord saw that Leah was... And in the New King James, it says unloved. And that's a good translation. However, the literal word there is hated. It doesn't mean, so he said, when he saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So it does not mean that Jacob was not treating her like a wife. He has a child by her uh, in in the same verse. It doesn't mean that he despised her. What it does mean is that Leah was not as loved as, as Rachel was. And that was the word hated. Now, so when Jesus is saying here in in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, you have to hate your father, mother, your, your brother and sister, your children and your wife. What is he saying? He's not saying you literally have to spit on them and despise them and denounce them to be his follower. He's saying this, you need to love me supremely. I think one of the examples of this would be that when a person signs up to go into the military, in many ways, they are making the choice that their service to the United States is going to trump just about everything else uh, for them while, while they're in, in serving their country. So whether it be two years, four years, maybe it's 25 years. If the country uh, needs that soldier, to go to, uh, say, Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever the, the problem is, that soldier will leave father, mother, wife, children behind, brothers and sisters. They'll leave them behind to go out and to serve the country. Why? Because that commitment reigns supreme in that soldier's life until his time of duty is, is over. And that's really what's going on here. The Lord is telling us that above all earthly relationships, Jesus must be must prevail. He must take precedence. It's interesting when we've had, uh, I've mentioned maybe once or twice on the radio broadcast about a missionary we support in northern Ghana. And um, in that particular culture, which was heavily Islamic, uh, he had several people in his church that were poisoned to death after uh, coming out and being baptized as Christians, then they were poisoned by their own family. Now he did not say, as a result of this, well, you you know, let's not baptize as Christians anymore. Let's just kind of be silent in our faith. He didn't say that at all, and rightly so. The claims of Christ are: you need to love me more than you love your family. I need to reign supreme. And so Christians in, in his church were often told, I don't know if they have to do that now, I think it may have calmed down some, but they were told, when you get baptized, you're, you're going to have to move out of your house, or you're in risk of being poisoned to death by your own relatives. Again, but Jesus reigns supreme. He reigns supreme. If I, I've also seen people that have failed to do this. I remember talking to a man uh, down in the Moscow area, And his family was going to a church that really wasn't preaching the gospel, and he knew it. And he claimed to me to know Christ as Savior, to love the Lord, to want to serve him. But the bottom line was this, he would not leave that dead church. The church that was not teaching the proper way to heaven, that was was teaching it's a, it's a matter of works and being a good person and, and being a member of the church and being baptized and all these other things, was adding all these things into salvation. He knew that was wrong, and yet he was not willing to forsake that church simply because of his loyalty to his family that trumped his loyalty to Christ. That is, that's what Jesus is saying. You can't be my follower if you're going to do that. Think of um, when Jesus said, uh, you can't love a, a wife or husband more than me. We had a lady in our church she has gone home to be with the lord now and before her conversion she was an airline stewardess and she fell in love with one of the pilots um on um, that she must have come across in her in her work the problem was her, her the pilot was a married man and um not not a christian at the time this lady um decided that she would um break up his marriage and uh, along obviously with his help And so they married. He divorced his wife. And uh, they moved into the area up above us a little ways, equinox area. And um, for for several years, uh, she was married to him, evidently. I don't know exactly what the timetable was. I do know this, that along the way, someone began to share the gospel with her, some Christian books with her, and she began to consider the claims of Christ. When she accepted Jesus as her Savior... And her life began to change. Her husband left her, the airplane pilot. He left her, never to come back. He basically told her that since she had accepted Christ, she was no longer fun, uh, wouldn't do the things that she once did. And for the rest of her life, this woman up in the equinox area lived by herself, no children, so her only family was our church family. Uh, matter of fact, um, when our kids were young, we used to go up to her house um, for Christmas Eve or have her down because she had no one, and um, she would make little gifts for the kids that were very meaningful. And uh, but that we were we were kind of her family at Christmas. Uh, after uh, a while, she got cancer, and um, she ended up in uh, Wayne Woodlands uh, Nursing Home. And, um, and she actually willed the house, her house, to the church. And we used those funds um, in the purchase of the parsonage that we now live in uh, next door to the, the, our church. And also we used some of those funds in building our, our family center. Uh, but here's a woman that her life did not take a turn for happiness and prosperity and all of that. Her life took a turn, humanly speaking, for the worse when she accepted Christ as savior and the lord does not preach this health and wealth gospel that you hear so much about on television and sometimes even radio where you know you're supposed to get everything uh, that you want in life when you accept Christ as savior that is not the gospel that our lord taught he said loyalty to me must come before anything else in your life your your spouse your parents what about your children There's a man by the name of Tim Kazee, we um, support a mission that he works with, and he has a book out where he wrote of a man who was saved in the era of the old Soviet Union. Upon this man's conversion, his wife and children all disowned him, Uh, couldn't understand why he would become a Christian when basically the whole society was atheistic and, and no one who was anyone in society would claim to be a Christian. Uh, no happy ending for this guy either. Uh, I believe he lost a good-paying job over the fact of his acceptance of Christ. Um, he suffered greatly as a result of being forsaken by his family, living by himself in a tiny apartment. Uh, Tim, this man who wrote the book, met him at some point in his travels in that area and rightly felt privileged to know a Christian who loved his Lord more than the approval of his family and his society. Um, I don't know if this man is still living or dead. I do know this, that he has had a very solitary life after accepting Christ as Savior. He was not patted on the back. People didn't come and jump up and down at at his baptism. And yet he had God's joy and peace in spite of all that he went through. Jesus said, you can't love your wife, you can't love your children more than me. He even mentioned your brothers and your sisters. Now, we have people in our own church family whose brothers and sisters despise them uh, because they have chosen Jesus and left a dead church in order to follow Christ in baptism and to go to a Bible-preaching church where they're going to hear the Word of God on a weekly basis. Um, Even when when I'm out visiting, I know that many times um, I will wear a a coat and tie. Often I have a tie on that has some kind of a gospel message or verse of scripture or something on it so that people will know I'm a Christian. Um, I I try to carry a a, a regular size Bible. Um, I do this for, for a few reasons. One was that when I was, uh, um, just new in the ministry a number of years ago, I was actually not taught to, uh, taught not to uh, carry a full-size Bible. In my day, we were encouraged to carry a small New Testament or a pocket Bible that we could pull out. But one day, many years ago now, I felt I needed to carry my Bible, that actually I was, um, acting ashamed of the Word of God, and I knew that was wrong. I knew that I should not be ashamed to carry God's Word publicly, so I determined to carry a normal-sized Bible when I go into a hospital or nursing home. I also wanted people around me to be reminded about God. And I have had some people actually approach me because they saw me with a Bible, or they saw a tie that I had on, that some kind of gospel message, they asked for help, they asked for prayer, Um, just a few weeks ago at a viewing Uh, with my wife's uh, father at his passing. Uh, I had quite a conversation with a woman who noticed that I had a scripture uh, on my tie and uh, opened up a conversation about her soul. And hopefully we'll see her in heaven one day. Well, it'd be a little more than a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago to two years ago, um, I was walking out of Wayne Memorial Hospital here in Honesdale when a guy stopped me to ask me to pray for his wife. And um, I said, I'd be glad to. And as best I recall, I offered to pray with him right there in the parking lot. And so we did. Um, again, he saw my Bible, knew I was a pastor, knew his wife was having some issues. And so I prayed with him right there. I also asked him if he'd like me to visit his wife while she was in the hospital. Now, this is pre-COVID when, when you could just go in and out of the hospital. wasn't a big deal. And so he said, yeah, that'd be fine. But he also warned me. He said, now, don't try to change your religion. He says, she'll throw you out. And the guy looked somewhat familiar And so anyway, I decided, well, I'll go up and and, and call on his wife and try to pray with her and and talk about the Lord with her. And so I I did. I I went up there, and and, uh, we honestly had a very good conversation. I got to visit her on more than one occasion. But I kept thinking to myself, boy, that guy, you you know, he kind of looked familiar. And um, I, I eventually figured out, I forget exactly how long it took me, but but I figured out that this was actually a guy who had a problem with one of our church people. He was actually a relative of one of our church people. Um, had a problem that he had left his church um, to go to our church. And yet, again, our, our loyalty has to be to Christ and not our own family members. And I was really glad that the Lord opened up that opportunity to be a blessing, hopefully, to um, uh, one, of my, one of my church members, family members. Jesus said, you have to love me supremely. More than father, more than mother, more than uh, your wife or husband, more than your children, more than your brother or sister. You want to be my follower? You're going to have to love me supremely. He said also, you have to love me more than you love yourself. He said, here's how he puts it. Yes, and his own life also. If he doesn't love me more than his own life also, then he says he cannot be my disciple. So what if knowing and walking with Christ means that your earthly life has no happy ending? What if you end up like uh, the stewardess I talked about, who lived the rest of her life alone, or the man over in the former Soviet Union, who as far as I know may still be living a life where he's been rejected by friends and family? Will you follow Christ no matter what? That is what Jesus is using to identify a true disciple. Not the person who merely says he is Jesus' follower, but the one who, when following Christ, costs him, will follow through. Will actually make the decision, the tough decision, to say, what God wants me to do, I will do. Were to follow Christ uh, more than I would my own family. I have to love him supremely, or I cannot be his disciple. He mentions another way in verse twenty-seven. He says, "And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." Now we're talking about bearing a cross. We're not talking about you know, having a, a necklace around your neck with a nice cross on it that's, that's that's attractive. We're talking about someone in in that culture that was that was the most torturous way you could die. It was it was a horrific thing. It was something that was very real and going on in Jesus' day. And, of course, he himself would, would be crucified. So I don't know if I have a strong enough word here to express what Jesus is saying. The cross was an instrument of torturous death. You were never intended to survive the cross, just die a horrific death on it. And remember, Jesus is saying to a multitude of people, many of whom would claim to be followers of him, that he is and he's headed toward the cross and he's saying you cannot be my disciple if you don't take up your cross and follow me. So what does he mean? He means you have to be willing to to make the tough decisions that will cost you maybe everything you want if necessary to follow me. So even if let's say my spouse is treating me terribly and I feel like I, I ought to just ditch that relationship and find somebody better, and I'm—I I, that's really what I want to do because this spouse, the spouse of mine, is so selfish and so cruel and and very bad with money and whatever else you can say. What Christ is saying is, well, what has God already said? God has already said that we're to be loyal to our spouse until death. The man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife; they shall be one flesh. Jesus said himself, "What God has joined together, let not man put asunder." Now, you can make up all kinds of excuses, but what Jesus is saying is this, take up your cross. If it means torture to yourself, obey me. Someone says, well, I have to lie. Uh, my, my, my workplace demands it. Maybe I'm in sales. Maybe I'm in some other uh, um, uh, area of business and, and you just, it's standard operating procedure. I'm not going to be able to keep my job. If I'm not dishonest. Jesus is saying, pick up your cross if you're going to follow me. He's not saying, well, I'll, I'll understand your cheating. Or I'll understand you uh, um, ditching your spouse for someone else. I, He's not saying that. He's saying this. Pick up your cross and follow me. Obey me. Obey me. Now, That's what being, he says, if you don't, you can't call yourself my disciple. You're not one of my disciples. Doesn't matter whether you call it yourself or not. He says, you can't be my disciple if you can't follow me. Now, he gives another area of obedience uh, where he says, again, if you can't do this, you can't be my disciple. It's verse uh, uh, 27, uh, verse 28, excuse me, down to verse 33, for For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he have enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So I have to be willing to forsake all human relationships. Jesus has to be superior and come first over all human relationships. Jesus Christ also has to be followed no matter the sacrifice. Take up your cross and follow me. And now Jesus is saying to be my disciple, you have to forsake all ownership of everything you have, all your possessions. The idea here is that Christ now owns you and all you possess, including your wealth, your health, your family, Can I ask an obvious question at this point? How can Jesus make such demands of his followers? I don't know a a human being that would try this. And can I... I remember when I was studying for this message originally, that's exactly what came into my mind. It's like, how, how can Christ make such demands? And the answer is because he's God. That's why. Because he's god who created you he's the god who who died to save you from your sins this is what the true god deserves is it not this is what he deserves and he's he's just not backing away from the reality of what he deserves and it's so so typical today that in in all of our churches across the country many many times across the world we try to make Christianity out to be such a, uh, a thing of glory and, and wealth and health and we're all uh, just happy all the time and there's nothing that ever goes wrong and our, our kids are always smart and they grow up to be um, great citizens. That is not the picture Christ is drawing here. and He's the one that is the one defining what discipleship is. He is saying, you need to follow me no matter what. No matter what it may cost you. I think about a lady in our church when I first came here back in 1996 and hadn't been here very long. And I was coming down the road toward my house, and her son flashed me down um, from behind with his car, headlights flashing. And so I pulled over, and he ran up and he said, My father um, is in complete cardiac arrest. They've taken him to the hospital. So I, I was just a, a couple minutes literally from the house. So I stopped in the house. Changed real quick, ran down to the hospital. by the time I got out of the hospital, a good friend of mine who was on the ambulance, uh, one of the ambulance workers i don't I don't know if he was actually on that particular call, but he was at the hospital by then comes out weeping he said we were unable to save him. He's gone. Now, his wife does not know that yet. she's a godly woman, a member of our church. and so I walked in on that scene as the uh, nurses sit down one on each side of this dear godly lady and tell them that her husband has has just passed away. Now, when a person is in that kind of a stressful situation where her life on earth, her life on earth was forever changed at that moment, it's kind of hard to fake your Christianity at that point. And yet, what I saw has impressed me to this day. The woman looked at, at those two nurses and through tears said, I don't know if you know Christ as Savior or not. But she said, if you don't, you need to know him because you could never go through something like I'm going through right now without him. And you know, what, what was she showing? She was showing an attitude that though the Lord had taken the most dear person on earth to her. She was not going to spit in God's face and be angry about it. She was going to actually be a witness for her Lord because God is God in her life. That's what Jesus is really saying. He's saying, if you're going to be my disciple, I need to be your God. And as your God, that means I own all your possessions. As your God, you need to follow me, whatever the sacrifice. As your God, all human relationships are in submission to me. That's what Jesus is saying. And he says, if you can't do that, you can't be my disciple. Don't call yourself my follower. That's what he's saying. Now notice Christ's message then to the saved. Just a couple of things here. It's uh, verse 34 and the first part of verse 35 of Luke 14. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. What's his message to the saved? And again, remember, theres he's very popular at this point. There are a multitude of people behind him, following him. And what he's saying, he's saying about salt, and that was, it's a picture of the believer in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said to his followers, those who are truly his followers, he said, you are the salt of the earth. So, um, when he says, when the salt is lost its savor, when it's lost, um, when, when I was trying to come up with the right word when, when I originally preached this, and, and one of the guys spoke up in the congregation, what was lost is saltiness, and that's about the way you can describe it. Um, when the when the salt is, loses its, its flavor, its, its salt its pungency, um, then it's a picture of the Christian losing his purpose. And the purpose of being on this planet as a Christian is not... To, to have an easy life, a fun life, it's not to get to do all these things I want to do. It's not to fulfill my bucket list and and have all these things that I spend on myself. Your, your purpose as a Christian on earth, if you truly are Jesus' disciple, is to follow him. That means following his example. That means obeying his commandments. That means loving other people, whether they love you back or not. That means trying to serve God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and and your neighbor as yourself, and your Christian brother, you're to love him as Jesus loves you. That's what being a Christian is all about. And when we stray from that purpose, it's like the salt that loses its, its flavor. Now, what did salt do in Jesus' day? Well, salt preserved meat was one of the major uses for it. It also brought flavor or enjoyment of the meat or other foods. And it also could purify a wound. Now, um, if you think about it, that it's a really good picture. Jesus used salt as a picture of the Christian life because he said, you know what? You are the salt of the earth. Okay. So, so in many ways, we are to preserve the culture in which we live. The culture tends to decay. And we see this going on in our country right now. The, this, the, the way that, um, entertainment, the way that, that the government, other, other areas of our society are slipping away from God and slipping away from his laws. And believing people are to, to to hinder that decay. By our testimony, how we live, by what we say, by what we agree with, and what we disagree with, we're to preserve. Salt was also again used as flavor and enjoyment, and Christian people ought to be used to bring blessing to our fellow man. We ought to use our talents for his glory and to bless other people, whether it be in music or it be in science or mathematics or in building, whatever it might be. But the talents and the abilities that God gives us ought to bring blessing to our society or our fellow man. We also should be like purifying a wound. We should be people who actually help people to get out of problems when they're in them. We should be the person that, that, that helps, that someone can turn to, to, to pray for them, to counsel them when life is going the wrong direction for them. I have a second question. How did the ancient salt, which could, by the way, become impure and lose its saltiness rather easily, how did this ancient salt accomplish these purposes? Well, it needed to ma- maintain purity, obviously. So Jesus is saying, don't stray from your purpose. Because if you become impure, if you lose your flavor, notice how he puts it. If the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's, it's basically impossible to get it back. It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. The dunghill will be the garbage heap. Men just chuck it out. It doesn't do any good. And when a Christian becomes impure and strays from his or her purpose in life, your life will be a waste. And so Jesus is challenging his people, don't don't lose the, the difference that I can make. Don't lose your focus, your purpose. Now, again, can we as Christians, can we struggle with getting away from God's purpose? And do we need to get things right and move back? Absolutely. But we need to also guard our testimonies because there are times when Christian people fail, and to be honest with you, that you just you can't get it back. I think of Lot um, back in the Old Testament era, and and he had uh, moved him himself and his family into the wicked city of Sodom, and when God told Lot that he was going to destroy the city and, and and encourage Lot to get out. Lot went around, the Bible says, to his uh sons and daughters in law and, and and or his sons-in-law and his daughters and tried to talk them out of uh, out of, of staying in Sodom and tell them you've got to leave, it's gonna be destroyed. And the Bible says he seemed like one that mocked to them. He seemed it was like a joke to them. He had lost his his moral authority, he lost his testimony, and they didn't take him for real for too long he had compromised with the wickedness of his day he had become much more like the wicked people around him and so now when it when it really counted when he needed to be able to be respected and followed he did not he did not have that ability any longer think about a friend of mine who who at one time was a godly witness and um, was being used of the lord and um, got to the place where he made some really bad moral decisions and blew up his marriage and was involved in, in some immoral things. And and as a result of that, uh, many in many different ways, his testimony was just basically shot through. And um, at the end of his life, he really was not able to do much good for the Lord. Jesus is, is warning the believer here, don't stray from your purpose. Don't lose your pungency. Don't get away from being the person that God has meant you to be. Don't waste your life. And then he has a, it's just a brief statement to both the saved and the lost as he wraps this message up. It's a very simple statement. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The idea of Christ's message now to the saved and the lost. Now he's talked to the lost people about what it means to be a disciple. And he's not painted a rosy picture. Then he talked to the believers. If you're like, you're like salt, don't lose your focus. Don't lose your, your, your flavor. Now he's saying to everybody, if you have ears to hear, hear. Now notice whom Jesus is addressed, addressing. It's, it's what I would call the spiritually sensitive people. He who has ears to hear. Which obviously begs the question, are there not then people who do not have ears to hear? Who do not, um, have a, a soft heart toward the Lord? And the answer is absolutely. Matter of fact, if somehow, miraculously, you are a hard-hearted person and you've only, and you've, I don't know why you'd have kept listening to me this long. But if that's where you're at, and and honestly, you you have a heart that is hardened against God, can I warn you that you tend to hear only what you want to hear? For instance, if your heart is hard against God and you want to find fault, you will find something that you can find fault with. Uh, Whether it be a preacher, whether it be my words or someone else's words, if you want a hard heart, if you want to resist the Lord, you can find something to find fault with. If you want to get angry, you can hear something that will offend you. If you want to fool yourself into thinking you're saved, even though in your heart of hearts you know you're not, you will find something that gives you false assurance. If you want to justify some sin that you're clinging to, if you want to find something that will help you to further deaden your corrupted conscience, you can find that. If you want to do something wrong, that you find an, want to find an excuse to uh, convince yourself that God is somehow okay with even a clearly sinful act that you want to commit, you can find an excuse. You can find something that you can grab onto, and uh, but you're not hearing what God wants you to hear. Let me just say it to you this way. If you are, are, are a hard-hearted person, you will hear what you want to hear. But if you are a spiritually sensitive person, you will hear what God wants you to hear. And so Jesus, tragically, is not even addressing the hard-hearted. He will at other times. And it's often with great warning. And I would warn you, if you were hard-hearted, to to turn from your rebellion against God as as kindly as I can. Turn from your rebellion against God. It is not a good end that you're facing. But Jesus is specifically addressing People who do have a spiritually sensitive heart, he said, if you have ears to hear, if you're willing, if you actually have the ability to, to, to instead of reading into what I'm saying, to actually hear what I'm saying, to actually understand what I'm saying. If you have those kind of ears to listen and really believe what I'm saying to you, then then don't just listen, do something about it. That's what the idea of he was ears to hear, let him hear it means this. Do something about it. Fourteen times in the New Testament, this statement is recorded from the lips of Christ. Now, sometimes it's the same message. So, But the reality is, 14 different times in the New Testament, Jesus says this thing, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He's calling to those who are hearing the truth and really understanding it to say this, Okay, if you understand the truth, then practice it. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 says this, Therefore, hear now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. You see how hearing and then not departing from the words of his mouth, actually practicing what he's saying? Next verse. Remove your way far from her, talking about an immoral woman. Do not go near the door of her house. So Solomon starts out by saying, okay, I want you to listen to me. and then, But listening involves obeying. It's not merely understanding what Solomon has said. It's actually practicing it. And that is what Jesus is saying. If you have ears to hear, hear. Do something about it. Live it. So let me just give you some conclusions, and then I'll give you a couple applications, maybe three. Number one on the conclusions. Jesus is not teaching you should come to him so you can get all you want in this life. If, if you're if you're thinking the Christianity is your best life now, you're on the wrong road. You really are. Jesus is not teaching that at all. Jesus, instead, number two, is demanding your full love and surrender to be his disciple. That's what he's doing. Thirdly, Jesus is demanding what only God could demand. And that's why he's God. That's why he has the right to do it. Fourthly, Jesus addressed the crowd, but spoke specifically to those with the heart to listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Fifthly, once you have heard God's voice, you must decide if you will obey god doesn't force you that's going to be your choice if you have ears to hear jesus is saying then hear, then do something about it so if you're lost here today i just beg you to count the cost of following christ notice and i'm not painting a rosy picture can i also ask you to count the cost of not following him because i'll tell you this when you run your own life it doesn't end well it doesn't end well on this planet, let alone on the uh, when when you step out into eternity, when you'll be under the wrath of God because you fought, you sided with Satan, God's enemy, rather than siding with the Lord. You have to count the cost of following Christ, but I'd encourage you to count the cost of not following Him as well. If you're saved, do not stray from following Christ and fulfilling your purpose. Don't don't lose your your saltiness. Don't lose your flavor. Stay with focused on serving the Lord, on, on loving your neighbor as yourself, on loving your your um, Christian brother as Jesus loved you. Stay on the course. Live a life of, that is a godly testimony for the Lord. And then to all of us, fear the hardened heart. Fear the heart that, that hears what it wants to hear. And what causes that hardened heart, by the way? Well, let me close by taking you to a passage in Hebrews chapter 3, starting with verse 7. And in this passage, uh, the author of Hebrews specifically addresses the person with a hardened heart. Again, if you're turning in your Bible, it's Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to start at verse 7. Here's what the Word of God says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. What he's saying is, is that, the, that there was an example in the Old Testament of the Israelites who hardened their hearts against the Lord. And, they, and, and they, it wasn't a lack of evidence. They had seen so many miracles. God had done so much for them, and yet they tragically had came up to the very brink of the promised land and and hardened their hearts against God and would would not enter in. After God had done so many things for them, miracle after miracle, they had a daily miracle of manna from heaven every single day, yet they could not trust God to go into the promised land. Why? Verse 10, therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. That's an incredible statement when when God would say they have not known my ways, when God had shown them so many miracles. So I swore in my wrath, God goes on and says, they shall not enter my rest. All right, now there's your example. The Old Testament nation of Israel that refused to go into the promised land. Verse 12, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So what is it that that causes a hardened heart? Well, I will give you two things. Number one, rebellion against God. When When you know what's right and you will not do it, or when you know something's wrong and you do it anyway, rebellion against God will harden your heart. And a second thing is unbelief in the truth revealed by God. Once God has shown you the truth and God had told them to go into the promised land, they rebelled against that and they refused. Why did they do that? Because they refused to believe that he would take care of them. So what is the what does the author say here of Hebrews? He says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. May God help you. Not to harden your heart. If you have ears to hear the truth, if you haven't distorted what I've said and you've understood what Jesus is saying about being his disciple, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Then follow through and obey. Come to Christ today if you haven't. If, you, if you're uh, not sure about your salvation, you can talk to God right where you're at right now. And you can ask him to forgive you and save you. And you can tell God by the by, by his grace, you, you will, will serve him and follow him loyally. And I pray that you'll live up to that commitment. And then if you have accepted Christ, don't let the, the many things that can come in to distract you take you away from your purpose of life. Loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your Christian brother as Jesus loved you. May these commandments and, and all that comes from that uh, because when I when I when I practice those commandments, it's going to affect my daily life in so many areas, in every area. When you practice those things, your life is going to mean something. And then may all of us fear the hard heart that doesn't hear the truth. And when we understand the truth, may we obey. Father, bless these folks. Thank you for the privilege of of, of sharing your word, Lord. Our Lord's commands and his truth about what it really means to be his follower, I pray that you it'll find root in the hearts of people that are sincere and open and that they'll follow through on the truths that you've given them. We pray this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you would like to see some of the original video sermons of the series Pastor has been working through concerning the messages of Christ, you can find them on our Facebook page at Calkins Baptist Church. If you know someone who is shut in or otherwise unable to attend church in person, we live stream our service weekly. You can look for that service to be streaming starting in just a few moments at approximately 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. We're also just beginning to put videos of our services up on YouTube, so if you don't have Facebook and would like to view a message, you can search for Calkins Baptist Church on YouTube and you'll find the beginning of our presence there. If any of you would like to share this radio message with a friend, you can find a link to our podcast on our Facebook page. Just look for a radio bold icon on our feed. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.